Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In January of 2016, President Obama said that he intended to start what he called a cancer moonshot. It made headlines in part because it was inspired by Vice President Joe Biden, who had recently lost his son, Beau, to brain cancer. But there was something unusual about the moonshot. A similarly aggressive stance on cancer had been announced 45 years before, in 1971, when President Nixon said that the disease was too great a threat to Americans and that, quote, the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and that took man to the moon should be turned towards conquering this dread disease. And I hope that in the years ahead that we may look back on this day and this action as being the most significant action taken during this administration. But the National Cancer Act did not help Bo Biden, who was two when the act was signed and 46 when he passed away. Richard Harris has spent 30 years covering science for NPR, and he started to wonder why medical research has struggled to make breakthroughs, not just with cancer, but with all sorts of really tough diseases. He's the author of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So I want to get to that uh, broader question about the problems with a lot of the medical research that's being done today. But first, let's let's take this issue of cancer research and why it has not advanced more. Um, is the reason that we have not cured cancer or made much better progress on it an issue of um, this is really hard? Because we call it a moonshot. But John F. Kennedy said we want to get a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And in fact, we had gotten a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Um, so is it that? Is it that it's really hard? Or are we doing something wrong? I would say both. Uh, is, there's no question it is a very difficult problem to solve. And it's not just cancer. It's not just one disease, of course. It's many, many different diseases. Right. So uh, so that makes it even more difficult to understand uh, how to move forward. And there has been modest progress. Uh, if you look at mortality rates for cancer, they have been slightly declining. If Actually, uh, a lot of the improvement has been driven by things like getting people to stop smoking. So mm-hmm. we've actually made uh, improvements on the front end of things pretty well, mm-hmm. and uh, for, like Colon cancer, for example, is is declined substantially because of uh, colonoscopies, which has helped people avoid developing cancer in the, right. to begin with because they find polyps, they remove them before they become cancerous. So, so it's not true that there's been no progress. But when you start looking at metastatic cancer that's spreading throughout the body, that has remained an incredibly difficult problem. And and there are some successes, but 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 not nearly as many as we would like in treating those cancers. So yes, it's a hard problem, but it's also because some of this research has been a little bit off the rails, in my view. Um, One of the things that at least I hear people say every now and again is sort of, you know, where are the big breakthroughs that, you know, we've been told, oh, uh, something for Alzheimer's may be right around the corner, something for ALS right around the corner, something um, to deal with cancer right around the corner, but it doesn't really seem to happen. 
And I often hear people say those things and think, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, gee, we have a lot, accomplished a lot in terms of medical science in the last few decades. Um, but then I read your book and thought, uh, maybe there is something to that throwaway line that people, that we are not accomplishing um, as much, or we have not accomplished as much in the last few decades as we might have hoped. Right. And and what I look at in my book are uh, sort of these avoidable errors that scientists make uh, much more commonly than I had expected. Uh, people who've attempted to take a look at how much of the scientific literature, how much that's published in scientific journals is correct, particularly in biomedical uh, science, they say, at least half appears to be wrong. And some of this is unavoidable because, you know, scientists are poking away at the edges of knowledge and you're going to make some mistakes and we shouldn't at all blink about that. You know, they're trying hard. They're asking hard questions and the answers don't always come out the way they expect. But I also found many, many instances and many causes for uh, experiments not to be correct because people did something wrong, something that they didn't have to do mm. at the outset. And that's what the focus of my book is on. I talk about rigor mortis. We're talking about the rigor of science here. And rigor is not dead, clearly. But uh, it could it could use a shot in the arm. And that's the conversation I'm trying to stimulate with the book. But you indicate that the last 30 years have not been as impressive as, let's say, the 30 years before. So that 1980 to 2010, not as good medically as 1950 to 1980 in terms of, like, major advances. In terms of big improvements, yes. I mean, part of that is that uh, we conquered some of the really hard and big problems that had dramatic solutions earlier Mm. on. I mean, antibiotics helped. A lot of the drugs that were developed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s really sort of set the stage. And and someone once referred to this, I referred to as, you know, it's harder to be better than the Beatles. Uh, And and to some extent, that's what's going on here, is that the improvements were dramatic then, so by comparison, they're going to be less dramatic now. Mm. But it is still the case that drugs are getting more and more expensive to develop. And uh, very often, these drugs are are less and less effective. Uh, They may have some minor effects, some minor improvement, particularly anti-cancer drugs. Uh, But on the whole, I was just looking at a report from the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society that came out a couple of weeks ago asking what's happening with mortality trends in cancer. And they uh, just offhandedly at some point in the report said, oh, by the way, you can't really see the effect of all of these new sort of hotshot new generation drugs yet uh, in these mortality rates, because even though there have been some subsets of cancer that have improved, the effects of these targeted therapies have not been dramatic enough to show up overall in the statistics of any particular cancer. So that's a sobering reminder Mm. that, you know, yes, maybe individuals, and there's certainly success stories uh, for an individual with melanoma, maybe a small percentage of them respond dramatically to drugs, and that's fabulous news for for them. But but if you start to say, okay, what about melanomas as a whole or other cancer, does the answer is, mm, the effects are wonderful for individuals, but they don't add up to a collective cure or anything approaching it for cancer. You talked about avoidable errors when it comes to doing studies, um, trying to figure out new medicines, new treatments. When do you feel like these avoidable errors started or started ramping up? Well, I think they've been with us all along. Uh, I don't have great data on this, but there's a lot of suggestive evidence that as it's become more and more competitive and more and more difficult to get NIH grant funding uh, to fund basic biomedical research, uh, the temptation, the, the pressures have been put on people to to make their results seem, you know, dazzling and almost too good to be true. And uh, scientists know that in order to keep their their research labs going and to get grant funding continuing and to get promotions and so on, 
that they have to have spectacular results. And guess what? Nobody does work spectacularly all the time. I don't, and I assume you don't either. And <laughs> nothing personal, I, but it's just I, not I human think nature. That's a reasonable right? assumption. <laughs> right. So the point is that uh, the expectations on these scientists are basically you can't have an off day, or if you do, you might lose your funding. Hmm. And that's a, a pressure that is just unbelievable. And you can imagine even scientists who are, you know, trying to do their very best are thinking, wow, the, the, I'm really working hard against these incentives to make sure that I'm doing stuff correctly. So how does that pressure then manifest itself in terms of uh, the kinds of mistakes you see people making? Well, some of it comes down to uh, just sort of cutting corners here and there, maybe not doing that last experiment that might actually prove that you're wrong instead of right, which mm -hmm. is the way scientists really should should be thinking about things. But uh, it's better for them to get a paper that has a splashy finding and then turn out down the road that it wasn't quite as dramatic as they thought because uh, the splashy finding helps propel their career forward and then sort of the refinements down the road don't matter so much. That reminds me of the headline on the front page of the paper that says something and then they issue a correction on page 13 on the lower left-hand mm -hmm. side like the next day. And it's the headline that people remember even right. if it kind of got it wrong, like because people didn't really make it to the correction page. Right. And, and in this case, uh, we science journalists report these things all the time, you know, a relationship between a particular pesticide and Parkinson's disease, for example, or you know, a new mechanism for ADHD. And it turns out very frequently that, uh, in, you know, over a couple of years, science follows up and finds out that these are, in fact, not true. But we don't report the follow-up. There's not even a correction because we don't even find those papers. You know, there's approaching a million papers a year published in the scientific literature. It's really hard for us even to identify the papers that say, hey, remember that story you reported about a couple of years ago? Well, if you feel like it saying it didn't pan out, you could, but we don't even find those papers. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Richard Harris, a science reporter for NPR. He's also author of the book, Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. So um, I have interviewed a ton of scientists. I, I know personally a ton of scientists. A lot of these people got into science because they had somebody they knew died of cancer, um, you know, because they wanted to solve a huge problem, a really difficult problem. And they always sort of have their eye on that prize, that prize of like helping, you know, thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, how could we have possibly gotten to a situation where people are more worried about tenure or where the incentive system is is taken away from the idea of let's just find a cure for this thing because, man, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And I don't think that scientists have given up on those those high ideals and, and their desires and their drive to, to understand biology and to cure disease. I think that's still very much there. But the problem is, it's not a straight ahead road, right, to get there. And uh, they realize, in order to get there, I have to keep my career going and I have to start doing these other things. And I think a lot of scientists don't necessarily think what they're doing is detrimental to their science. They don't realize uh, the effects of these little, well, if I just skip one experiment here, I'm, you know, I'm 
I'm still thinking my, my original answer is correct. Or if I just reanalyze my data this way, that's probably not such a big deal. So people aren't, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, you know, I want to do sloppy science. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just, it just kind of creeps in uh, just because of these other incentives. So the question is, how do you align it so that the people who are thinking about their careers are also with equal vigor able to think about the problems they're trying to solve? So give me a couple examples of situations in which scientists didn't get it right and ways in which this surprised you, maybe even surprised them. You know, I mean, let's assume, I assume, as you said, most scientists are not looking to do bad research. They are looking to make breakthroughs. That would really be the ideal. Um, but give me a couple specific examples in which, you know, you can see how scientists can get it wrong. Right. Well, let me tell you the story of transdifferentiation, which is uh, something I feature in my book. It's a uh, a study that was a couple of studies done around 1999 and 2000, and scientists were studying bone marrow cells, which normally can generate a whole variety of blood cells that circulate in the in the blood. But these scientists did a little tweak, and they thought, ah, I, we can now coax these bone marrow cells into becoming cells that will turn into any kind of cell in the in the human body or many, many different types at any rate. So brain cells or liver cells or, or so on. And they realized this is a very powerful technique for generating cells that we can then study and use and maybe even uh, use for medical purposes. And everyone got very excited about transdifferentiation. And there were, according to uh, one estimate, there were a couple of hundred studies that were done that were people following up on this exciting finding saying, yeah, we're finding it too. And the literature started to fill with these papers. Hmm. Well, a lab at Stanford, uh, Amy Wagers was a a scientist there at the time, and uh, she and her senior scientists in that lab said, you know, no one has really done the careful, let's see if this initial phenomenon is really real. People are sort of picking it up and running with it, but is it really real? And they did a couple of incredibly careful experiments involving mice where they actually combined the circulatory systems of of two mice, sort of stitched them together to watch how these cells would go back and forth between individual mice. This is a wild experiment. That's crazy. They They combined their circulatory systems by stitching them together. I know. It was a very clever and thoughtful experiment. And what they determined was actually these, these blood cells are not transfiguring themselves into all sorts of other blood cells. They were, people were being fooled by a particular uh, fluorescent marker that was in the circulation of these animals. And and, uh, and so the whole thing turned out to be a bust. But it took several years, and, a, and a, by then a huge amount of effort had been expended, and a lot of people had sort of gone to town on this idea that huh. this is a, a very exciting discovery that then once this paper came out, people realized, oops, that was all wrong. Huh. I wonder if uh, fixes have started to be put in place to, like, address some of these problems. And if you have an example, maybe, of an action that is being taken to try to uh, make science better. Well, the fixes are not entirely in place, but people are thinking about these issues. And the NIH has started to put out some rules and some guidelines to improve some of the easy things to fix. One example is a lot of cells that are used in research labs turn out to be misidentified. People think they're using a breast cancer cell line, and they're actually using a cervical cancer cell line. Well, it turns out there's an inexpensive test you can run to figure out whether your cell is what you think it is. You can pack it up and send it off to a commercial lab for a couple hundred bucks. They'll tell you... 
here's the cell line you're actually using. And so the, the NIH has said, if you are a scientist using cells in your laboratory, we now expect you, as effective last year, to validate your cell lines, to make sure that they are what you think they are. And so that's an example of a, an easy fix that that problem has been around for, for many, many decades. And the technology has caught up to make it really inexcusable that people are still making those mistakes because the technology is so readily available and not that expensive. Of course, that we were talking a lot about some of these deeper cultural issues, NIH can't wave a magic wand and say, okay, all of a sudden, instead of having a hyper-competitive environment for grants, everyone will have all of their great ideas funded. That's Well, for, in for... <laughs> fact, the NIH, the, the National Institutes of Health, it's, it's getting harder and harder over the decades to actually get a grant from them. So the fact that their pool of money isn't really increasing, I think you could argue, contributes to the fact that there's a hyper-competitive environment. Absolutely. And we've heard some discussion about cutting the NIH budget. And if that happens, you only make this problem worse. So you're not, you know, maybe someone will say, oh, there's so much waste, we can just cut the budget and reduce the waste. But it does, obviously it doesn't work that way because mm. all you're doing is you're making the competition for money that much more difficult. Richard Harris covers science for NPR. He's also the author of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. Richard, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Harris told me one other reason, a small furry reason, that we shouldn't always trust new scientific results. We put too much stock in studies on mice. And I think scientists in general and journalists also uh, tend to think, well, gee, if it works in a mouse, you know, fingers crossed it'll work in a human. And most often that actually does not turn out to be the case. We've got a story that we reported a few months ago on why we use mice for medical research and why so often mice are pretty bad human stand-ins. It's a quick listen, about seven minutes long, and you can find it on our website, innovationhub.org. That's where we will also have links to more reporting from Richard Harris. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.